All right. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. It is great to be able to ask these questions of the person who wrote the questions. So I am super psyched. No, now I'm super nervous. <laughs> I don't really remember all the questions I I asked. I remember reading them from different books and I said, oh, those would be interesting questions to ask all our 117 um, classmates. So we'll see. I'll do my best. This is going to be fun. Um, so I know you work in the hospitality industry, um, mm-hmm. but help us understand what are... What are the things that are really top of mind for you? Obviously, mm-hmm. a lot's happening in that space for you right now. Um, how how are you thinking about uh, trends that are going to last and not last? Yeah, I think what's um, most surprising about the hospitality industry that most people don't realize is that it's everywhere. So it's a service-based economy, and it's extremely vast, and you can essentially find it anywhere and in all your interactions on a day-to-day basis. So that includes um, food and beverage, so restaurants, bars, lounges. It includes travel and tourism, and that also includes um, airlines, cruise lines, modes of transportation related to travel. Um, It also includes hotels or lodging, which is one of the largest um, real estate uses in, in many parts of the world. And it also includes any sort of recreation or entertainment. So call it casinos, museums, um, uh, tour operators, etc. So it, it really encompasses so many broad and different types of businesses. Um, and therefore, everything that's been happening around COVID-19 has truly impacted the profitability of many of these businesses. And the just the sheer employment has come to a screeching halt um, in terms of growth. And it's kind of scary to think because if you had asked me this question maybe six months ago, I would have told you many different things about where the industry is headed and whatnot. And I think the the landscape has changed significantly in the past three months where a lot of businesses won't survive this. Um, and we're talking about the small mom and pop businesses that are trying to figure out how to keep their labor force, um, that are trying to keep their their small businesses intact, even after all this is said and done, it's truly creating a a damaging and lasting uh, negative impact on the industry. So, you know, to, to be, to be completely frank, it's for me personally, it's been a truly emotional sort of roller coaster, but the past couple of weeks trying to help investors figure out how to keep their businesses sustainable after all this is, this is done. And so um, when I think about the trends longer term, I think there's going to be a bigger emphasis on crisis management and emergency preparedness. The industry itself did not ever expect to come to a screeching halt as it has um, in the past two months. This sort of wave of, of layoffs, furloughs is, is impacting how many investors, hotel operators, restaurant entrepreneurs are looking at their businesses going forward. And it's a scary thought um, and because it, it used to be such a globalized industry. And the fact that travel has also um, stopped altogether, it puts a question mark as to how long will it take for the industry to recover? 
And so from that standpoint, I think there's going to be a bigger emphasis on artificial intelligence and the role that technology will play in this recovery. Um, and so that'll include just how we turn a people services based economy to a more tech focused or tech oriented type of um, operation where you know, customer services delivered through technology. I think there, there will be a bigger emphasis on that simply because of everything we've seen so far. Um, and, and that might potentially impact the, the labor force required um, going forward from a hospitality standpoint. And so you'll see more um, technology taking over the role of existing um, jobs it within within hotels, within restaurants, and that could include anything from concierge, um, hotel concierge being replaced by chat boxes or um, room service attendants being replaced with actual physical robots, um, which has already been tested and, and trialed run in, in, um, in different companies like Hilton and Marriott. So it is coming, but I think this, um, this whole wave of unprecedented um, consequences that we've seen in this in um, in our industry is truly accelerating that um, that path towards technology. So I think going forward, it's truly going to change the dynamics of how we interact with people within these types of businesses. So it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. But, um, you know, I've been putting a lot of uh, thought into how how we go about our businesses day to day and how do we advise investors the best path forward. And I think the biggest fear is that the hospitality industry will likely not return back to its normal or call it pre-COVID status um, because a lot of businesses will be forced to change and adopt this new technology um, as, a, as a way to become more efficient. So as you're thinking about um, as you're thinking about helping businesses survive, mm -hmm. um, and this this may not be um, a, a relevant question, but what are what do you see as the markers or the characteristics of businesses that will survive? And does that differ if it's like a mom and pop um, hotel, for example, or? Mm -hmm. um, bed and breakfast versus the, the larger groups that own several properties? It does. I think um, many of the mom and pop businesses don't have the investment or the capital to, to really look at their business and transform it um, and basically move towards this digital age. Um, and one of the things that is truly going to impact them going forward is uh, the cost of acquiring a customer. Right. So the advantage that many of the large hotel operators, for example, have is that they have an ability to they have this engine to generate distribution across all their hotels. They have booking engines that allow them to minimize that customer acquisition costs through every reservation and through every direct booking that happens um, on the hotel website. A mom and pop shop doesn't necessarily have that ability unless they make significant investments. And so those businesses are truly going to be impacted um, in the sense that they'll need to start considering either being bought out or 
doing some sort of um, doing more research or getting more capital to to move the platform forward or to move that business forward into a more tech oriented um, type of future because before it was very manual and they didn't have enough, they, these businesses probably don't have enough investment to look at new ways of distribution. And so they historically paid tremendous uh, commissions to other third party online travel agencies like Expedia or um, Travelocity, et cetera. And so many of these companies are now being forced to figure out how do I lower my customer acquisition costs and how, where do I invest in that technology to, to make it happen, to make my business sustainable going forward? The large operators already have that. And, and I would say in many instances, um, they benefit from that, which is why they're able to grow um, and, and have so many brands under their portfolio because they are able to not only segment the data, the customer data, they're able to create brands based on the trends they see in that data as well. And so the, the smaller mom and pop businesses can't afford to do that unless they pay extraordinarily high commissions. Um, and so I think those would, those would probably be the most disrupted. Um, and, and, and even though the CARES Act is intended to help many of these small businesses, um, what this crisis has truly done for the hospitality industry is forced it into this digital transformation that um, was underway, but probably not in the accelerated um, time span that we're looking at it right now. Hmm. So I guess one of the things that probably comes out of this is that there's a lot more concentration of power um, in the players that survive. Correct. Yeah. And, and on a, I, I, the way I see it as well is the hospitality industry has historically been so fragmented. And so emerging out of this crisis, I think you'll see tremendous opportunities for consolidation. So to give you an example, um, when you look at the car rental business, you really have very few players. You have um, you have Avis, you have Hertz, you have um, Enterprise, you have very consolidated operations within that vertical um, amongst hospitality sub-industries. But when you look at, for example, hotels, you have an overwhelming number of hotel companies um, that even within themselves have, again, a, an overwhelming number of brands. So Merit alone has more than 34 brands, um, a core as well. So you have all these large industry players who will be forced to rethink um, how to be more cost efficient. And that is probably going to give rise to consolidation or mergers or acquisitions in a way um, where many of these companies are going to have to find ways of becoming more efficient. And in doing so, they'll have to consider partnerships or mergers with other big players to remain sustainable. Um, so we're seeing it not only on the small mom and pop side, but we're also seeing it on the larger, um, amongst the larger players in the industry. Um, shifting gears a little bit, mm -hmm. how, what inspired you to be in this business? Uh, I, I guess I, I've never really asked you that question. Um, how did you land up here? 
Um, well, kind of by accident. <laughs> um, my my family. So my family um, immigrated to Colombia um, in the eighties, and they're all entrepreneurs. So they started with the restaurant business, and they just had a Chinese restaurant. Uh, my uncle and my dad also opened um, casinos, and so and and they even had like an arcade um, at some point in the eighties. But anyways, we've always been a family that's invested in the hospitality industry. So I worked as a hostess as young as when I was 15, I started working as a hostess in my um, dad's restaurant. So I learned the industry and then I decided I wanted to think more broadly and perhaps not go into the family business, which actually ended up being my dad's advice. He said, just try to do your own thing. Don't worry about having to take over the family business, um, you know, do what you want to do. And at that point in time, I wanted to be a lawyer, totally different from what my family had been doing. And, um, and so when I applied to college, I applied under the notion that I wanted to, to do pre-law as undergrad and then go to law school. And I enrolled as an industrial and labor relations major. And I worked at the student run hotel that was adjacent to adjacent to the um, to the school. And I worked there as a valet attendant. And and this was more to, you know, to pay for for books and all the other um, college essentials. So I, I worked there probably uh, four to five times a week. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I hated all my classes um, that were part of the, the mandatory curriculum. Um, and so that sort of started causing me a little bit of angst um, because I was spending time learning about things that I wasn't truly interested in. And I had to rethink what I wanted to do. And um, and slowly I started learning more about the hotel school and I decided that I wanted to apply and, and figure out if maybe a, a switch in undergrad majors would would give me that sense of place and it did um, so you know that that sort of shift in undergrad majors um, made me love the industry so much more and then when I told my parents about my decision to move into the hospitality space, they were like, well, it took you long to figure that out. <laughs> it's, that, it's in your blood. It's in your DNA. Um, and I've loved it ever since. I mean, it, it's a very different um, industry. There's so many sub-segments that you don't hear about. Um, so there's hotel real estate. There's hotel investment banking, there's restaurant entrepreneurship, there's so many different niches within hospitality. And I ended up loving the combination of hotel and real estate. Um, and so when you look at hotel as real estate, it truly is a 24 hour operation. And, and therefore, it's the type of real estate that never sleeps, right? And so it's, it's uh, your inventory is perishable. You constantly have to be on your toes. So that sort of dynamic and the combination of the two really motivated me to learn more about um, how to create value in real estate through hospitality operations. 
And that's one of the reasons I just fell in love with the, the whole advisory side of it. It's helping people figure that out, how to maximize operation, operational efficiency, and create value, intrinsic value to the real estate. So, um, you know, it's been an industry I've been in for 10 years now, um, and there's still so many facets to it that I probably haven't learned about. Um, and as things change and progress, I think that's one of the reasons I've stuck in this industry for so long. It's because it constantly keeps me on my toes, and continuously learning new things. Um, and, and I think that's, the, that's also sort of the beauty of being in, in such a big industry where you can constantly pivot and shift and learn about different sub-industries within hospitality. Mm. Uh, talk to me about how how you learn new things um you know part of it is you're you've been around the block and your clients rely on you to provide expert uh, advice and so to some degree you are the expert and so where mm-hmm. do you go to learn uh to learn more and like think about what might be causing disruption mm-hmm. before your clients even have a chance to think about it yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, sometimes even though we are seen as the experts, um, I rarely tell clients that we know it all. Um, and that's why a big part of our day-to-day involves doing field work and research. Um, you don't know it all. And, and one aspect of consulting, which I love, is that you don't know what you don't know until you start figuring out what is the right framework, what are the right questions I need to be asking to, to draw um, to light those those sort of key takeaways or trends um, or observations that the client or uh, the investor needs to know about in order to pursue a potential investment. So I spend a lot of time traveling and I do um, a lot of primary research, and that includes talking to you know many of the stakeholders within the industry to fully understand what's happening. Each market is different. Um, each type of um, hotel is different as well. And therefore, the emphasis on the primary research side is so important. Once you get down to the local level and start interviewing people, um, whether it's tourism officials, economic development office um, officials, uh, or even general managers of hotels, you start learning so much more about the dynamics within that market and within the and, and within the industry. And so you start aggregating or accumulating this wealth of knowledge from other people and you start seeing a bigger picture. Um, and, and I think the beauty about consulting is exactly that. It's taking all the, the details and being able to consolidate them in a way that um, when you're forced to make a higher level decision, you understand all the potential trade-offs and you have an ongoing discussion with the client or with the person you're trying to advise as to what trade-offs are most relevant. And that could be money-related, that could be time-related. That There are all sorts of trade-offs that you could be making with any one particular decision. And, um, and then as an, as an advisor, you seek to minimize um, the cost or the time of those trade-offs. So it's a constant sort of like puzzle that you're trying to solve. It's never going to be a perfect puzzle, um, but you're trying to figure out based on what you know about the client, what you know about their investment criteria, and what you know about the local market um, 
and the decisions that they're trying to 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 come to you try to you try to sort of put all the puzzle pieces together and that's sort of the end result of it all the implementation phase of it um it really depends sometimes we we get into the nitty-gritty of the implementation and sometimes we just stop at the point where you know it's a go or no go decision so it almost looks like a decision tree of some sorts where we help them define what that decision tree needs to look like before they start making considerable amounts of investment. And then on the basis of that, we'll either get looped into the different implementation phases, or if it's a pencils down sort of decision, then we'll we'll just leave it at that. But, but the end result was we probably saved them um, a considerable amount of investment in time and money. Hmm. This is probably an odd time to be asking questions around looking back, and maybe it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you look back, um, what is the best mistake you've ever made that's helping you right now? Um, man, I don't remember giving you this question. So uh, <laughs> the best mistake I ever made, I, I would say it was Probably applying to college under the notion that I was going to be a lawyer and being so, I, I was very stubborn back then um, in my views about what I want out of my career and, and in my future. And I was very idealistic back then. And so when I applied and then started figuring out that I did not like what I was learning, I wasn't enjoying it and whatnot, and I was forced to rethink reinvent myself in a way after having done one or two semesters in college, I think the the best mistake I ever made was um, applying and applying to college for, for a type of career that I hadn't really thought about as to whether or not why I liked it. And I, I think I was just thinking about um, success in a very different way. Um, I was thinking that, you know, being a lawyer would probably be a very prestigious type of job. And, and that was a mentality that I had leaving high school. Um, and so the best mistake I ever had, I ever made was probably that is applying and then figuring out that it wasn't for me. Um, because if I had gone about, if I had gone about just my my day-to-day and not really stop to think whether I was enjoying what I was learning and whatnot in school, I probably would have gone down a path that I would have regretted at this point because I wouldn't be enjoying um, my career. I wouldn't be enjoying what I'd be learning. Um, and so I think that in a way, um, it made me, it made me realize that you can always reinvent yourself and it shouldn't matter you know, titles, jobs, um, they come and go, it shouldn't matter. And it gave me this really, um, it it gave me this ability to not fear what I don't know. Um, But rather just say, you know what, as long as I'm learning, that's all that matters. That's Mm -hmm. really what at least my parents always said. Um, If you stop learning, it might be time to shift gears. And I was always afraid of that. So I, I don't know if I concisely answered your question, but it's a, it's a tough one. But I think that one in retrospect is probably one that I made that 
made me a better um, thinker and more appreciative of making mistakes. Um, As you think about um, how you make decisions, um, how how you sort of put the frameworks for how you live your life, um, are there any guiding principles that that come up very often that help you make decisions or quotes that yeah um lately there's a quote that um i read somewhere and i and it's about the distribution of of time versus wealth um but the quote reads uh you can spend time making money and you can spend money buying time so you can use money to buy some time to spend making more money and repeat the more money you have the more time you can spend to make more money. And in some ways, this contributes to wealth concentration by creating leverage on time. But still, money doesn't make time. So there's a limit to how much it's worth spending time making money versus elsewhere. Time is the real store of value. So maybe the wealth distribution conversation should include the distribution of time. Um, And that one was apparently someone named Osaka. I think I read it in, in some um, in some blog a, a while back, but it kept coming back to me, and so I just wrote it down and I and I share it with certain people. And um, when things when I start losing perspective on what truly matters, this this quote pretty much keeps me grounded. Not money shouldn't matter. It's really where you spend your time, who you spend it with, and it's we, we do spend a lot of time worrying about money. Um, when you think about, you know, and, and not to say that it's, that we don't get utility out of it, that it's not necessarily, not necessarily important, but in retrospect, um, a lot of people end up learning the hard way that, that money doesn't matter. Um, and so when I think about, you know, my family and when I think about, what I want to remember when I'm, when I'm, you know, old and gray, um, it's really where I spend my time. And so sometimes this keeps me grounded and puts things into perspective, especially if I've had a, a long day at work and, and, or, or feel completely hopeless. Um, this sort of helps me shift gears and, rethink where I'm spending my time and who I should be spending it with. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's, it's a, it's a good quote that I've kept um, for, for a couple of years. And, um, and it's one that really makes you think about the importance of, of wealth accumulation. Right. Um, and puts things into perspective, especially as we think through, okay, do I want to get this next promotion? Do I want to have X, Y, Z? What is this truly buying me? Right? right. Or even when you're on your deathbed, like all this money in the world, will that buy me more time? Um, and at the end of the day, time is one thing you can't create, which is the, the sort of the harder pill to swallow. Right. Right. I have another question that's sort of on the same vein. Um, mm-hmm. when, you, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, you just talked about that quote as recentering you on priorities. 
mm-hmm. but what we do more sort of from a habit, more sort of tactical perspective. So lately, um, I mean, we were talking about it earlier. I, I stress bake. I'm a stress baker. Um, and when I feel like things are out of control, um, I, in, in order to recenter myself, I like to do activities that help me feel in control. Not because I'm a control freak. Okay, maybe for some things I'm a control freak. But in general, I would say that um, baking is, is sort of like chemistry and the sum of all the parts, the ingredients at the right measurements, um, it produces a beautiful result, right? And so for me, baking while I'm under extreme stress helps me channel all that negative energy or that um, sort of state of hopelessness um, to something a little bit more productive. And I've done this since I was in college. I actually, I was, I started baking in college during finals and I started giving away all my, um, all my baked goods. Um, and so my roommates were, um, were not very happy with me after they like gained tens and thousands of pounds (laughs) after living with me. But anyway, um, but I did that and I figured out that this was a, a healthier way of channeling all that sort of energy that I was spending on stressing over things that I couldn't control. And at least baking recentered me because I could control the outcome, knowing that if I mix the right ingredients at the right temperature, this whole chemistry uh, process would would produce such a wonderful thing. And I know it sounds so simple and basic, but at the heart of it, the sort of the task of putting things together and combining and creating something um, puts away all these uh, thoughts of things that happen in my day to day that I can't control. So, so it, it, it does help in some way and um, doesn't help, you know, when it comes to the pounds that I've been accumulating because of all the stress baking, but um, it does help to, to think about better things about creating things. You know, as you as you were saying this, um, what came to mind was we we talk so much about trusting the process, mm-hmm. and there is a more honest way of reflecting that in physical reality than you know. There's a process. You know that it works all the time, um, mm-hmm. and I can sort of totally relate on how that makes everything else seem like, yes, there's a process for this and there's a process for more abstract things and there's a process for more complex things. And so if it works mm-hmm. here, just take comfort in the fact that it works. Yeah, no, it. absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And it is what it is, right. Um, that that's something that I've been trying to, to think more about. It's there are things you just can't control. And as much as we, we want to, control them, you have to trust that process, right? You have to sort of take a leap of faith and say, it'll, it'll be okay. And maybe I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it'll be okay. And it's completely dark. Um, And hopefully along the way, you'll see some stars to guide you, but, um, but it might be dark and it might be just such a, a grueling process. But I think that that's one of the reasons why 
baking for me at least has been a good outlet for, for that negative energy. Mm. Um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit from baking mm-hmm. to reading. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what are you most looking forward to reading um, right now? If you look at your Kindle or your nightstand. So, okay, so six months ago, had you asked me this question, it'd probably be a a more intellectual set of um, books and novels. (laughs) Right now, I'm trying to keep my mind busy and learning new things. So I've bought books on watercoloring or books on how to write children's books. So now I have this weird assortment um, on my nightstand and, and in my Kindle of things that I wanted to learn or that I'm interested about and just never had time to, to invest in, in learning about these things. So I've started watercoloring. So I bought, I think like three books on how to watercolor. Um, then I started also reading books on how to write children's books. Cause I spent a lot of time with my goddaughter just, um, reading her stories and whatnot. And so I've always been curious about how, how to, how to write for children. So I I bought books on that. And then the other book that I have on my nightstand that I haven't, I haven't read to its fullest extent, but I'm reading sort of in in smaller digests is uh, principles of Ray Dalio. Um, Uh And I kind of picked up the book um, when I was at the airport and, and I started reading just like one of the, the chapters on on his perspective on life and work and i feel like the the book is the book is pretty structured in, in his way of thinking about both life and work and those principles that he that he um, lives by and so i kind of felt curious about you know what are the things what are the things that he's felt that have had a meaningful impact in his life both for work and work and life. And so, um, so I picked up that book and I have it on my nightstand to read, but as you can see, it's all over the place. Um, but it's, uh, I think my, my goal during this whole quarantine is to learn new things, um, and to keep my mind busy with, uh, with new hobbies and new things that I wouldn't have otherwise done had it not been I'm stuck at home and I'm trying to find new things to, to learn about. So. Um, one last question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think forward to three or five years from now, what makes you most hopeful about the future of humanity? Um, it makes me most hopeful. You know, there is good in this world. Um, and yesterday, I, I think William had sent a, a link to to this short YouTube video from uh, John Krasinski, um, where he was trying to spread good news all around. And I I watched the video, and it gave me that sense of peace that at least even with all the crazy things happening um, around the world that there's still goodness in people's hearts. I think it's people want to help other people. I think it's in our nature. 
Now, some people want to help more than others, obviously, but um, I think that the fact that it's ingrained in us somehow um, from, from the day we're born, it gives me a sense of hope in that there's a population of people out there, good people, that want to leave this world a better place. And they, they're actively thinking about their legacies. I think all of us at 117 included, like what will be our legacy after we leave? And that legacy comes in many different shapes and sizes, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and sometimes the, the people that we surround ourselves with and the people um, that we try to make happy on our day to day, those are the people that benefit from that legacy. Um, and, and so I think in some, in some ways that gives me comfort in knowing that we're all trying to do our part, whether it's in our local community or just within our family. Um, I, I think more broadly speaking, each little part counts because the sum of all the parts hopefully contributes to, to a better, um, a better, bigger world. Mm. That's at least the hopeful in me. <laughs> Um, but I, I do think that, um, are, there are very good people out there trying to do the good, the good deed, um, even in, in the darkest of times. On that note, thank you. This has been such a treat. No, thank you. I mean, gosh, these questions were hard. I don't know why I sent you all these questions to begin with. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed this conversation and the other conversations in this podcast series, um, I hope you'll drop a note to say thank you to Wendy who created the questions and without whose inspiration and encouragement, this probably wouldn't have existed. So thank you, Wendy.